This is the word of God. Um, yes, David penned it originally. He's the human author, but God is the divine author. Uh, everything in the Bible is written by two different parties. One is uh, the human party, uh, and the second is the divine uh, author, who is God. God is perfect. He makes no mistakes, which means there are no mistakes in the Bible, uh, as originally given in the, uh, in the Hebrew and Aramaic and also in, uh, in the um, Greek in the New Testament. Uh, that means that in the original penning of it, God said exactly what was true and what he wanted to say, and there was no uh, errors in it whatsoever. And we have, the fa- we have the promise in Scripture that faithful translations of the original uh, languages and the original uh, manuscripts, or we don't have actually the originals that uh, Moses wrote or that Paul wrote or whatever, but copies of the originals, faithful translations of those remain for us uh, the authoritative word of God. This does. It's the authoritative word of God still. Uh, to us, even though it's uh, translated out of the original. So, this is an English translation of the original Hebrew, uh, and God is speaking as I read it to you, so listen reverently and carefully to what God says. Psalm 65. For the choir director, a psalm of David, a song. There will be silence before thee, And praise in Zion, O God. And to thee the vow will be performed. O thou who dost hear prayer, to thee all men come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, thou dost forgive them. How blessed is the one whom thou dost choose and bring near to thee to dwell in thy courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, thy holy temple. By awesome deeds thou dost answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. Thou who art the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea, who dost establish the mountains by his strength, being girded with might, who dost still the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. And they who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of thy signs. Thou dost make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. Thou dost visit the earth and cause it to overflow. Thou dost richly Thou dost greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. Thou dost prepare their grain, for thus thou dost prepare the earth. Thou dost water its furrows abundantly. Thou dost settle its ridges. Thou dost soften it with showers. Thou dost bless its growth. Thou hast crowned the year with thy bounty, and thy paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip, and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks, and the valleys are covered with grain. Yes, shout for joy. Yes, excuse me, they shout for joy. Yes, they sing. 
having troubles reading today. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon the preaching. Lord, we need you to bless this time. We need you, Jesus, to be our preacher, not me. Um, Lord, I'm a sinner. Uh, You are the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, uh, and the great shepherd of your people, the church. Lord, we need you to uh, speak through your spirit, uh, to grant uh, illumination to me and unction to me and blessing to your people uh, through this means of uh, saving and sanctifying grace. Would you please do that? for your sake, and yes, for ours, but especially for your glory, would you please unpack this portion of your word in a way that, for us, in a way that would be transformative and would bring honor to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, um, I want you to think about something, okay? I want you to think about a project that you might want to do. Um, uh, I see several young boys here, but this could also be true of young girls, too, come to think of it. Uh, but the example I'm going to use uh, is for you. Many of you are actually about the right age for this, because it's something I did when I was your age. But let me, before I get to the example, let me uh, pose a question to you. If you are, have something that you want to do, a project, okay, outside, let's say, and it's something that you want to do, but it's difficult, okay? It's a big project, uh, a project that's going to take a lot of time, and it's going to take a lot of work to do, uh, and it's a project that you're going to need help with, okay? I think somebody already came up with an idea there. William, I think, already had an idea of what the project might be, but anyway, something that you need help with, that you can't do by yourself. you got to have help with, because it's such a big project that's going to take so much time and it's going to be difficult. For example, building a tree fort. That was the example I had in mind. Uh, I used to love to build tree forts when I was a kid. I had two or three of them, actually. My brother and I and a neighbor kid, uh, a couple of neighbor children would join in, and we would work on tree forts for days, um, putting them up and securing them so we wouldn't fall out if we sat in them and I think we might have fallen out once or twice. Anyway, um, but they were they were quite significant projects. And maybe you have done that or wanted to do that, or maybe some other project. Maybe there was some big pile of big stones that you needed to move for some reason, uh, and you just needed somebody else to help you with that, or whatever. But it's a project that you needed help with. So let me ask you, if if you have a project like that, what kind of person would you ask to help you with that project? What kind of individual would you want to ask? Say, from the neighborhood friends, or people that you might know, kids your own age or a little bit bigger or whatever, uh, or smaller. But what kind of person would you want helping you? Do you want somebody who's, let's say, significantly smaller than you are and isn't very strong and maybe can, maybe is just started walking a three-year-old to help you with that big project? Probably not, right? You probably want somebody who's at least as strong as you are, maybe even stronger, to help you with that project. Would you want somebody who is 
thinks only about himself or herself and is all about, I want what I want when I want it. I want to build a fort. I want to climb up the tree. You can't do that. I want to do that. You don't want somebody like that, right, who's real selfish. Because this is a group project, a group effort after all, right? You want somebody who's, who's considerate. That's a fancy word for not selfish, but thinks of other people. And you want somebody who's not going to give you five minutes of their time, but maybe is going to give you five hours of your time, of their time rather. Somebody who's generous, right? With their time and their energy. They want to help you with your project. That's the kind of person you want to help you and who you want to ask to help you. Maybe you see where I'm going with this, children. We, in our life as Christians, whether we be three-year-olds, five-year-olds, ten-year-olds, twenty-year-olds, fifty-year-olds, or eighty-year-olds, we need help as, as human beings. We need help with things. Lots of help with lots of things in life that are much bigger than a tree fort. You're going to need help all your life with dealing with sin in your life. You're all sinners. And you all are told by God you need to sin less and less by trusting in Jesus and then trusting Jesus for strength to put away sin and to put on righteousness. You're going to need help with temptation. You're going to need help with, and we, and as adults, we need help with um, being disciplined and learning how to be more disciplined with our time. We need help with dealing with confrontation with other people. You're going to be in confrontation with other people as you grow up and when you get uh, grown up and maybe even at your own age. And it's not pleasant when you have confrontation with other people. But sometimes it's necessary, sadly. But you're going to need help with lots of things that you can't do by yourself. And the Bible says that we're supposed to go to God for help. We need to ask God for help with all the various things that we need help with in life that are much bigger than building a tree fort or moving a pile of stones. And this passage here reminds us of why we should be excited about going and, and, and be willing and, and eager to go to God for help with whatever we need help with. And the reason, basically, this passage teaches us that we should be eager to go to God for help in prayer is because of who God is. Because of the kind of God that we'll be asking for help from. The true God. The only God. The God of the Bible. It's because of who He is that we can go to Him and should be eager to go to Him in prayer and say, Lord, I need your help with whatever it is you need help with. And this passage is about who God is and why you can go to him and should go to him and must go to him for help because of who he is, his character, which is set before us in this passage. This is a poem. This psalm is a poem about nature, largely. But really, it's not so much about nature as it is about the God of nature. Israel, 
ancient Israel was an agrarian society. Uh, they were uh, largely farmers, raisers of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, yeah, of, of foodstuffs, and yes, also of, of um, livestock as well. Um, but they were an agrarian society. And the vast majority of its inhabitants were uh, farmers that, uh, uh, you know, stayed on the land and were not nomadic, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and even the herders were, were uh, localized, those who, uh, who took care of livestock. And so these folks, these ancient Israelites, knew nature. They had to, to survive. And they had to understand things about the weather and about the seasons and about uh, the uh, uh, about the land and the soil and so on and so forth and about their flocks if they had them, and they delighted in um, nature a lot more than most of us do. Sadly, but probably true. Um, they knew about the world around them, and this psalm is probably. David wrote it, but it is probably a harvest hymn that was sung uh, by God's people uh, when they were gathering in crops. We don't know that for sure, but it's a, it's a pretty good guess that that's based on what is said in it, that that's what it was, and it was why it was originally penned, probably by David. And it describes the bounties of a good harvest. But it really describes the bounties not so much of the land and the weather and uh, the, sur- the surroundings uh, of the land and the weather and so on and so forth, but rather the bounties that God himself bestowed upon them, God's people, in answer to prayers that they prayed for God's help and God's provision. So it's, a, it's really about God who bountifully gives to his people when they ask. Okay, so I've made my my case there. So this leads to three uh, points from this sermon uh, that we're going to look at in the remainder of our time together. First of all, you should eagerly and expectantly go to God in prayer because he is exceedingly gracious. Secondly, you should eagerly and expectantly go to God in prayer because he is exceedingly mighty or powerful. And then finally, you should eagerly and expectantly go to God in prayer because he is exceedingly generous. So he's exceedingly gracious, he's exceedingly powerful, and he's exceedingly generous. And these are the reasons why you and I should eagerly and expectantly go to God in prayer with our needs. First, because he is exceedingly gracious. That is to say, he is a God who forgives and forgives and forgives and forgives. And doesn't stop forgiving. Verse 3 speaks of God's pardoning grace. We read their iniquities, David saying initially about himself, but then he speaks of all of those whom he represents in his kingdom. Iniquities prevail against me. David was quite the sinner at times. I'm going to refer to that in a few minutes again. But iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, in other words, mine, the ones I've just spoken of, oh, and by the way, the transgressions of my people as well, As for our transgressions, note what he says, 
Thou dost forgive or atone for them. You do this, God. We are people of iniquity. We are people who have iniquities that prevail against this, that overpower us, that, that consume us at times. But thou art a God who forgives such iniquity and transgression and does so repeatedly. I'm now using the language dust and thou, uh, <laughs> even though I'm not reading from Scripture. Anyway, you get the point. Literally, the word he uses here when he says, uh, thou dost forgive them, is atone. It is the word uh, that is commonly translated to atone, kafar in the Hebrew. To cover over um, is what it means, to cover over, to atone. And it refers literally to the way that the blood of the sacrifices that were brought in by the high priest into the Holy of Holies were sprinkled over the cover of the Ark of the Covenant by him annually at the uh, on the Day of Atonement. He would bring blood in and sprinkle it on the mercy seat where the cherry beam, the gold cherry beam, were facing each other. And he would sprinkle it on that. And this is a, that's what covering, the cover is. It's covered with blood, is what it means, uh, at least initially. And since the ark uh, that saw that sprinkled blood, if you, uh, was uh, upon which that blood was sprinkled, since the ark held the Ten Commandments inside of it, which all of God's people uh, have broken in all ages, the people of Israel had broken the Ten Commandments. You have broken the Ten Commandments. I have broken the Ten Commandments. All ten of them. Regularly. Since the ark held those Ten Commandments, the sprinkled blood of the sacrificed animal symbolized the covering over of the violations, our violations, God's people's violations of those very commandments that were contained in that box. They were covered by blood. Now, in the Old Testament age, that was the ceremonial covering. Uh, the blood was ceremonially hiding the violations of God's law, the sins of God's people from the gaze of our infinitely holy God. It was ceremonially hidden, okay? But the blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sin. We know that. And it didn't take away the sins of the people of old of uh, of the old Old Testament church, Israel. That blood did not atone for their sins. What it did is it pointed them to the only one, the only sacrifice who could atone for their sins, and whom they were trusting in if their sins were atoned uh, when when uh, in the Old Testament when they lived. And that is pointed, the blood of the bulls and goats pointed forward to the blood of Christ. To the sacrifice of Jesus' life. The life is in the blood. Jesus shed his blood, which is to say he gave up his life. Uh, and that offering up of his life is what atoned not only for our sins in the New Testament age, but also for the sins of the Old Testament people of God. They had to look through the animals, in other words, in the blood of the animals, to the one that those animals promised was coming, and that was the final and the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the covering with blood of a bull or a sheep or a goat uh, 
was indicative of the the work that Christ would do, that the Messiah would do one day for them, uh, future from their uh, point in redemptive history. But Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, uh, who is pointed to by the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices, not only hides a believer's sins, believer in any age, believing in him, trusting in him, not only hides a believer's sins from God's sight, it certainly does that. What Jesus accomplished, his atoning work, certainly hides our sins from God's sight. But what Jesus did does more than just hide our sins from God's sight. The Bible teaches in the Old Testament, and even more fully in the New Testament, that God also credits Jesus' perfectly obedient life, his perfect righteousness, lived under his own law, perfectly obeying that law, that God credits that perfect righteousness to the person who believes, the moment he or she believes, and then looks at that person as judge in the courtroom of heaven and says, I see nothing but righteousness. I declare you to be righteous in my sight. That is what justification is. It's pardon of sin and declaration by God that you are righteous in his sight in the courtroom of heaven as judge. And he declares you that to be that the moment you are born again. The moment you uh, are given a new heart by God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are justified. And, And he can justify you, which means he not only covers your sins, but he also says, I see you as holy and therefore you are pleasing to me. And that is a one-time thing that has eternal consequences for you and me. It never changes. That verdict is never revisited, ever, by God. If it is truly rendered for you, in other words, if you truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope of being forgiven by God, not your baptism, not your church membership, not your, your social standing in the community, not the fact that you're a good parent or a good kid, but because you're resting in Jesus and trusting in the God-man and Him alone to save you, if that's the case, you are justified the moment you do that, your sins are covered, a kafar, and you are declared righteous by God, and that will never, ever change. Do you understand how important that is? You're going to go out of here today, and you and me too, by the way, I'm including all of us, we're going to sin. Before this day is over, every last one of us is almost certainly going to sin, probably multiple times, and most of the time we're not even going to realize that we're sinning. Every sin you commit, God has the right to say, go to hell. You have offended me, go to hell. He will never do that if you're a Christian. This is why it's so important to be a Christian, by the way. You must trust. You can't trust in your good works because your works aren't good in the sight of God. And you are you were conceived in sin. I was conceived in sin. All of us were conceived in sin, except Jesus. And and we and we work out the sin. Sin works out of that sinful heart for the rest of our life. We just commit sin after sin after sin after sin, voluntarily as an act of our will. And and nothing we can do can undo the damage that our sinful heart has done to us. And we will, we will suffer forevermore for that sin unless Jesus takes our suffering, our punishment that we deserve. That's what hell is, the place of God's justice being meted out. 
And unless Jesus takes our hell and Jesus covers our sin from God's sight and we get pardoned because of that, we are undone forever. All of us. Are you trusting in Jesus? The, the Jesus alone who saves and Him alone for your salvation? Are you? Is He your only hope of of being reconciled to God now and of going to heaven when you die? If he's not, you're in big trouble. But you can get out of it by merely crying out to Jesus for mercy and say, have mercy on my soul, please. Forgive me. Just like that will happen. And you'll be declared righteous on the basis of Jesus' perfect righteousness. Declared, uh, uh, imputed, or credited to you the moment you believe. God is unfathomably gracious, folks. His grace knows no bounds for those who are objects of it. There is no limit to it. He forgives us over and over and over again. Now that is no excuse for us to go out, you know, uh, uh, to, as Paul says there, uh, may, may we sin that grace may abound? Shall we sin that grace may abound? No, 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 he says. That's crazy. We're not a lot that we don't have carte blanche to keep sinning against God, but we're going to keep sinning against God, albeit less and less over time if we're a Christian. And every time we sin, forgiveness is there if you're a Christian. Again, it's never an excuse to sin, but it is absolutely true and will never change. And if you're, a, if you're a Christian, a genuine Christian, you'll hate it when you do sin against the Lord. And you'll grieve over it, and you'll turn from it, and you'll flee to Christ afresh. The depths of God's grace are not only evident in the fact that he justifies the ungodly, as Paul says in Romans 4, justifies, declares righteous people who are unrighteous because of Jesus, what I just said. The depths of his grace are not only evident in that fact, but also they are evident in it is evident, rather, in his election of specific sinners, hell-deserving sinners, to be beneficiaries of his um, saving work in Christ. Yes, I'm talking about the doctrine of election. Verse 4 speaks of it, if you look at the text. So, he says, how blessed, he just talked about those who have been forgiven, and then he goes on, and comments further, how blessed is the one whom thou dost choose and bring near to thee to dwell in thy courts, which ultimately refers to heaven, by the way. Initially, it referred to the court in Jerusalem uh, on the Temple Mount, but ultimately, it's a picture of heaven, coming to heaven. You and I, folks, all of us here, all men, women, and children in the world uh, and throughout history, save Jesus, richly deserve to be objects of God's judgment for all eternity. We all deserve it. You do, I do, we all do. I won't belabor this point too much, but you might just take just a second and think of some of the evil things you've done in your life. All you need is one. But you and I have regularly done all sorts of things. We have had God's idols in our lives, uh, our entertainments, our lusts, our agendas, our, our ambitions, uh, all that were about us and not about God. Every single one of those is idolatry. And we have all been filled with those kinds of things um, with, 
Uh, and I can say that because I know that's true of me, and so it's true of you. Because you're cut out of the same cloth I am. We all deserve God's wrath uh, and judgment. But if you are a Christian, God has graciously reached down out of heaven. He did this before you became a Christian, or as you were becoming a Christian. He reached down out of heaven and plucked you out of, as it were, metaphorically speaking, the flames of hell. He did that. He chose to save you. In eternity, in eternity before there was no time, was no space, before the foundation of the world, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, he chose you. If you're a Christian, or if you're ever going to become a Christian, but I aren't one right now. Uh, but you, uh, yeah. He chose you. He chose to have mercy on you. He said, I want to have mercy upon and fill in your name. I want to have eternal mercy upon you. He didn't have to speak your name. He didn't have to want to be gracious to you, did he? But he did. And he did that. He made his choices. We were just talking about this in Sunday school. Not because you or I were somehow less deserving of his wrath than the neighbor down the street who, you know, steals from his employer. Or uh, some of the folks that, you know, deal drugs in in the community or whatever. No, he didn't choose you because you're you're somehow worthy or choose me because we are worthy or we merit in some way his kindness. That's not the case. He chose you if he has chosen you simply because it pleased him to be loving and show his love, his loving kindness that we sang about in Psalm 136 to you, to make you Israel, have you be amongst the people of Israel rather than the people of Egypt or the people of Bashan or the people of... uh, Sihon king of the uh, Amorites. Uh, the Amorites. You could have been a, a spiritual Amorite. You are. You were born a spiritual Amorite. So was I. But he chose to transfer you and make you one of his children. The uh, spiritual uh, people of Israel. Uh, the church. That's the only reason. He just... It, for. Reasons that had nothing to do with your worthiness or my worthiness. He said, I'm going to set my love rather than my wrath upon Calvin or Heather or Daniel. Fill your name in. A lot of people don't like to hear that kind of doctrine taught. Sorry, it's right there. And numerous other places. It's a hard truth. To hear that God sovereignly uh, determines who he's going to uh, forgive and love and have mercy upon. A lot of people say that's not fair. It's not fair that he chooses some and doesn't choose others. I, I've, I've heard this said before. They say that's When people say, well, how can a loving God do that? How can he pick somebody and not pick somebody else? That's t- entirely the wrong question. The right question is, how can a perfectly holy and just God save anybody? That's the right question. That's a mystery. 
oh, it's, the mystery is, is uh, solved in his grace. The fact that God is not only perfectly just, he's also perfectly gracious. And, he, and the objects of his grace and his justice are two different groups of people. But he wills to have mercy upon millions and perhaps billions when all is said and done. The magnitude of God's grace is not only in his forgiveness and justification and choice of you and me, but it is also evident in the fact, and now I'm finally getting to the point of the overall point of the, uh, of the sermon here, that he hears and answers the prayers of sinners like us, which is what we read in verse 2. O thou who dost hear prayer, meaning the prayers of Zion, the prayers of his people. Even as Christians, we continue to sin against God regularly in our thoughts, words, and deeds. Even as Christians, we are unworthy of his uh, kindness, we're unworthy of his listening ear, and yet, in spite of our unworthiness, he never spurns us. He never turns us away when we come and want to talk to him in prayer. He never, ever does that. He ever watches over us. He ever hears our pleas for help, our pleas for strength, our pleas for wisdom, our pleas for grace, our pleas for forgiveness. He ever, ever hears those pleas. Never stops. His love endures, and that's his covenant love, the love that he shows us in the covenant, which is forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with him. That love never, ever ceases for his people, for spiritual Israel. Not ethnic Israel. There was spiritual Israel within ethnic Israel. There are not, it's not for just all church members. There are tares among the wheat. But it's for spiritual Israel. His love endures forever. And I haven't gotten to my other two points, which are going to come next week. Next time we're together, because I'm not going to do that, and it's, But just know this, this God who is, the only God who is, is, as he is in all of his attributes, is infinite in his grace. Don't get that wrong. Don't misunderstand that. Don't forget that. If you're his child, all you get ultimately is grace forever from him. Forgiveness, love, kindness, blessing, heaven. It's all you get. And yes, discipline is in there when you and I stray, which we do. Whenever we sin, we've strayed. And, but a loving father disciplines his children. The Bible tells us that. And it's unpleasant, but it's love. It's love. It's not anger. It's not, it's not fury, rather. It's maybe paternal anger, if you can put it that way. But it's always fatherly displeasure, not fury. And it's always for your good, even when he, it's painful because we haven't been paying attention. Do you know this, God? The only way you can know him is through Christ. The only way. Do you know him? Are you trusting in his son? Are you trusting in the only hope of sinners? 
If you have not trusted in him, please, I beg you, do so today. Let's pray.